This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you all for coming. We've got a great program today. We have six, uh, six teams that have worked very hard. They're very deserving to be here today. These are the prizes for today. Uh, the grand prize is $10,000. Um, we'll give category prizes of the first, second, and third in tech-driven and market poll. I'll explain that a little bit. The tech-driven companies are typically applying a more complex technology. It takes a little longer to get them to market, a little longer to get to a revenue position. They may not quite have a product with which to get to the market to start testing, so their development cycle is a little bit delayed. And so we, wanna, we want to judge them in a separate track from market poll. The market pull side, the market is, is generally a little bit more defined, and, uh, and they're a little bit quicker to market. Uh, in addition to the cash prizes, we have some in-kind prizes from our sponsors. Um, when, we, when we sat down for the fair, those of you that came to the fair saw these beautiful poster boards. Um, those were compliments of, of maps.com. Uh, the Santa Barbara Hackerspace opened their doors to us for lab space and 3D printing. Uh, Straddling and SoCal IP Law Group um, have been very helpful in terms of educating our students on matters of law, doing seminars, following up with office hours. Um, Sonaus is, is, has um, weighed in and given us the best party favor ever and, and um, awarded each student a play one speaker. Um, uh, the Tech Coast Angels have offered some pitch coaching, and we have two three-month uh, free rent stays at local incubators, one being GEM for the market pool teams, and the other being the new CNSI incubator here on campus. Let's get to the pitches, which is why you're all here. Hello, everyone. We're Sesamo, and we are taking the hotel key to your smartphone. Now, have you ever stayed at a hotel, and you're walking down that long hall to get to your room, and when you finally get there, your key doesn't work. So you have to go back down all the way to the reception just to get a new key. We've all been there. It's a pain. But it's not a pain only for the guest, it's also a pain for the hotel. Because they pay quite a bit of money for those pieces of plastic and they're not really cost effective. Besides, the most important thing in the hotel industry is the customer experience. That's what defines if a person will stay at one hotel or another. That's why we've come up with the future of the hotel key, Knock Knock. Knock Knock is a smartphone app that stores all of the keys for a hotel stay from now on. We've already developed this app for both iOS and Android. And as you can see on the second screen right there, that's our home screen. So when you first launch it, how it works in practice is you're going to walk up to the front desk at the hotel. You show that screen to them. They generate a key. It takes five seconds. They send it in, and then you have your key right there on the third screen. It has a nice picture of the hotel. It has a room number, so you never forget it again. It has your check-in, check-out date, some information about your estate. We also have a map feature, so you can get directions to the hotel from anywhere you are. And we have a do not disturb function, so once you have a key, you can just tap one button, and then the housekeeping will know not to clean your room. But how are we doing this? We've come up with a simple extension to the existing magnetic locks. It's a universal solution, so it works with any hotel locks out there today. It's very easy to install. It's as simple as replacing a spare part 
so the hotel technicians can do it themselves. And it's powered by Bluetooth Low Energy, so the lock can now communicate with their phone via Bluetooth. As you can see from the picture, the hotel lock is still in place, so we're not replacing it, we're just retrofitting it, we're just adding something. And we have a patent pending on this technology. So the hotel key software is a very exciting product, but it's just the first step to, uh, to get into this big industry that a hotel is. Once we have our extension in the hotel doors, our app becomes a platform on which we can build a lot more features that will benefit both hotels and guests. So we have a very clear vision on how we're going to expand on both internal services, things directly related to your stay, as well as some external services. So for example, uh, we'll have room service ordering at the tap of a finger. So you don't have to call anyone when you want to order something or talk to anybody. Also we'll have smartphone check-in and check-out so you don't ever have to stay in line at a hotel ever again. And we have much, much more. In the past four months, we've spoken to a lot of hotels and validated everything we've just told you. And there are currently two hotels that are willing to pay to have our product as soon as it comes out. Those hotels are the Best Western Beachside Inn and the La Quinta Inn and Suites. They're both in Santa Barbara, and we're working closely with them to have a pilot program in the upcoming summer. So... By talking to hotels, we honed into a pricing model of $40 per room for the hardware plus a $7 subscription fee per room per month. That subscription fee will increase by 15% year after year as we keep adding more features. So what hotels are paying for here is that customer experience, that guest convenience that will make a person want to stay at that hotel and that will make a guest that stays at that hotel want to come back over and over and over. In addition to that, we'll save hotels up to $4 that they spend on magnetic cards only per room per month. So what are the options out there for a hotel that has magnetic locks and wants to upgrade their system? So what some hotels have done is they've bought RFID locks. And what they are is it's a lock that works with a card, just like a magnetic card, but instead of swiping in, you have to tap it. And the only advantages is that they don't demagnetize and they have a slightly better tracking of who goes into the room and when. Um, so a little bit of security. Uh, but the problem is they're eight times more expensive than the Sesamo extension. And how can we charge so much less? Because we're not replacing the lock. We're just adding to it, and that's exactly what hotels want. And even though we're charging less, we're offering a lot more benefits to the hotel. So we have the best tracking of who goes into the room and when. We have the best key management. The key's right on your phone. So we're giving the tools to hotels to manage it the best way they can, and our key does not demagnetize. We're the only ones that there's no spare key needed. All you need is your smartphone. And the most exciting part, we have expandable features. So some higher-end hotel chains like Hilton and Starwood have taken this problem in-house, and they developed their own locks to work with hotel guest smartphones. Sorry, guest smartphones. But the problem with that solution is that's a very, very expensive way to solve that problem because they will have to replace all of their locks in all of their hotels, and not all hotels can afford that. So, um, I'm sorry. So, uh, uh, with the Sesamo extension now, any hotel can offer the same convenience to all their guests as these higher-end hotel chains offer for a much lower cost. So what's the size of this opportunity? Well, we begin by looking at all the number of hotel rooms in the United States, and we multiply that by our revenue model that we just showed you here before. 
by that, by doing that calculation, we found that we could make $500 million in yearly revenue by serving that market. Then we narrowed down to our medium price ho uh, hotels, which is our serviceable addressable market. And again, we calculated the number of hotel rooms in the US, multiplied by our revenue model, found out that we could make $270 million by serving that market. And lastly, we got to our target market. Our target market is the airport and airport hotels. They are the ones who are torn between updating to an RFID or not. They're the ones who need an immediate solution to this problem. So we, again, we calculated the number of hotel rooms for this market by our revenue model, and we found out that we could make $110 million every year from that market. So how are we going to go and seize that opportunity? Our sales strategy is divided into two stages. So the first stage is direct sales. That's what we've already been doing so far. We go talk directly to hotel general managers, and we pitch to them, try to get our product out in their doors. And then once we do that, we'll start building reputation, we'll do a proof of concept, and once we get their trust, then we're going to go and pitch directly to hotel chains. Once we do that, our goal is to get to become the lock brand standard for those chains because if that happens then those chains can actually enforce down um, our solution to all their hotel units across the United States and that's how we plan to get a nationwide adoption so with that as you can see here our cash flows we become Cash flow positive in 2017, according to our projections. Our, uh, according to our profits, we break even by first quarter of 2017. And you can see that our revenue has an exponential curve, mostly because of our, the second stage of our uh, sales strategy. So by the end of 2017, we plan to have 40,000 units sold and plan to have made $3.6 million in revenue. So our next milestones now is summer of 2015. We have this, these pilots coming up. For that, we'll need $50,000, which we're raising from friends and family. Uh, those funds are going to go towards some important legal services we need, some hardware components and manufacturing, and also getting more hotels on board to have a more thorough proof of concept. Then in the fall of 2015, we'll have the launch of our final product. In order to do that, we'll need to hire a VP of sales from the industry who has a lot of network and a lot of experience. And then in the spring of 2016, as our sales are going up, we'll set outsource the manufacturing line, which will bring our variable cost per unit down to $35. So in order to make this happen, we have a very special team. I'm Luan Vieira. I'm the head of marketing and sales. And I have some experience with startups back in Brazil, where I'm from. We have Lars Bialy. He's our head of finance. He's a PhD student here in the materials department at UCSB. Adam Toth is our head of hardware. He's an electrical and computer engineer, and he has over three years of experience at a home automation company. And Jordan Hughes, he's our head of software, and has over five years of experience developing software. And we're all grad students here at UCSB. We all work really, really well together, and we're ready to make this happen. And we're backed up by some pretty good advisors. We have Dave Smakowski. He's, he's got decades of experience as an entrepreneur, an executive, and he's helping us a lot with business tips. And we have Harvey Robbins. He has over 30 years in the hotel industry, and he's helping us a lot with all that experience. He's our industry advisor. So we're Sesamo. We're taking the hotel key to your smartphone. Thank you very much, and we're ready to take questions now. Uh, good presentation. Thank you. Um, Thank you.
thinking of barriers to entry, you had mentioned that Starwood and Hilton have come up with their own solutions, and I presume they don't infringe on your technology, and yet they're economically viable for those large chains. What would your response be in your business plan if they decided to roll those out to the middle market? So you're referring to the middle market of their hotels, or if they want to the sell? The middle market you were going to target. Okay, if they want to sell a hotel to other hotels. Yeah. So basically, if we can go to some backup slides. Um, so you're basically asking about competition. So as far as we know, Hilton and Starwood, they contracted this out to Asa Abloy. And as you can see here, they already have a lot of brands in hotel uh, lock business. So these locks, what they actually are, they are RFID locks that have NFC and Bluetooth enabled in them already. So basically, what it means in practice is that next generation RFID locks, they are ready to be equipped for smartphone keys. So what we would offer, we would offer something, again, much cheaper, so you don't have to replace the locks, just upgrading the magnetic uh, locks. With Bluetooth. So your, your, your advantage will be it'll be less expensive to install them? Yeah. Yeah, much, much. Basically, installation costs basically free because you don't need to replace anything. Okay. Thank you. Um, How do you, sorry. A clarification. What... Uh, hotels have you actually talked to, number one? And number two, uh, are you installed and operating now in any hotels? Are we what, sorry? Uh, yeah, okay, so for the first question, we spoke to hotels in between Santa Barbara and LA. We spoke to from Best Westerns in La Quinta, which are our pilot programs, but we spoke to Hyatt, we spoke to a few independent hotels, we spoke to varying from resorts down to cost savings hotels, and that's how we narrowed down to our target there. And I, I didn't hear your second question, sorry. Um, are you installed and operating in any hotels right now? Uh, well, we're going to install in July, okay. which, yeah, that's when we're going to have our pilot program. So, yeah, we're just narrowing down the details now. Hans or Judy? Um, yeah, if your advantage is that it's uh, cheaper and easier uh, to install, um, how is that? Like, in, in terms of if you're going after the middle market and the small hotels, not the big chains who have their own solution, um, there's all the, you know, it's a very fragmented lock market out there, right? I mean, there's, and, and it depends on the bolt and, and, all, and the mechanisms in the lock of how you interact with it with your device. So how have you made your device compatible with all the different locking mechanisms, and how do you actually physically install it so that it actually works with the bolt? So I had some slight trouble hearing you, but I think your question was basically how do we connect to the lock? Yeah, compatibility with all the various locking mechanisms as well as, um, you know, do you have different versions of it for different locks and, and how many of them are there and then how easy is it to install in those locks? So most of the locks have just the same mechanics in it. What we have right now, we tried on s several ones. All of them has the same mechanics in it, and all of them has just like a DC motor, which is like just needs a voltage pulse to lock it or unlock it. So until now, what we came across it, all of the locks use the same ones. So only two wires are needed to connect to any kind of locks. Right, so we used an oscilloscope basically to measure that voltage um, and the amount of voltage that was being passed through. Um, and then we can replicate that process with just about any lock because they're all based on the same simple. So your device, actually, you don't have to do anything to the door. It just sort of like sticks on and then intera intera interacts with the, with the lock itself and its electronics in there? 
Yes. 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 Okay. There's, there's no mechanicals. It's just all. Where's the hardware being manufactured? The, the original idea that we will have an extension on the top of the lock, but for the pilot to make it easier for the hotels, we will build our extension inside the metal lock. Uh, did you ask about where it's being manufactured? Or? The, yeah. the, the hardware, yeah. So uh, yeah, we can source all the parts from the United States, at least in the beginning stages, for the summer. Mm -hmm. And then later, if you want to make a manufacturing line, probably do it in China in some uh, shop, you know, become part of one of their uh, manufacturing lines. We have extra time because we're so efficient if you have follow-up questions. Um, can you describe your intellectual property position, if there is one? Right. So, we, yeah, we submitted a provisional patent last week. Um, and as far as patents related to this type of technology, yeah, there are patents on NFC, which is a different type of wireless technology, on uh, RFID type locks and locks in general for hotels, which are held by ASA Abloy. But there are no patents on Bluetooth-related technologies. Um, and that's either, it's either because you cannot patent things that are related to Bluetooth because it's a uh, sort of open source, um, you know, free of charge. If you want to make a commercial product with Bluetooth, it's free of charge. Mm -hmm. But we might be still be able to patent the idea of retrofitting a magnetic lock with a wireless transceiver because that is quite, that is noble. And we spoke to a lawyer, and yeah, he said we had a chance of actually getting that patent. And yeah, that's what what percentage of the hotels that are the small and mid hotels actually have um, mechanisms which you can communicate with? Because some of them don't even have, um, you know, this type of key. Yeah. So I, I guess you're basically you answer, your question is how many of them have magnetic key card locks, right? Mm -hmm. Is it ninety percent? More. More than ninety. Ninety. Yeah. A few. A few of them do have RFID locks. So. Yeah. W which will also integrate with so. 100% of the locks for the target market that we're the, the, the market that we're targeting, we can retrofit it so far. We did, we did find some boutique hotels, you know, in our customer discovery process that didn't have these type of locks, but yeah. these aren't the hotels that are even interested in upgrading to an electronic lock, much less um, a Bluetooth-enabled electronic lock. So. Yeah. What's your actual cost for the installation per door? So you, you're charging a forty dollar. There's a forty dollar tag on the install. What's what's the cost to you? So our installation process is basically shipping the unit to them and having their maintenance staff install our unit as if it was a spare part. So I guess if the hourly salary for the maintenance person is twenty dollars, takes them twenty minutes. You know, it's like eight dollars cost. But how much does it cost to eighty dollars? I think yeah. the question was, how much does it cost to install, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, so. Well, I was, I was thinking including the hardware and the yeah, labor exactly. and the... Okay, so I guess, yeah, the initial cost is $40, right, what we sell it for. And then you can, you can take an installation cost of maybe 8 to $10, so maybe up to $50, yeah. if you include the labor. The, the, if, if this starts to get adopted more um, and you're successful, what uh, prevents a competitor to build the same thing and sell it for half the price you're selling it for? I did not hear yeah, the question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. If you get some traction and, and uh, hotels start putting this uh, next to their locks, uh, what? How do you defend it? I mean, how, how do you defend it against a low-cost competitor that could, you know, build it and sell it for half what you're paying? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that would depend on getting the patent 
on the idea of uh, retrofitting a magnetic lock with a wireless transceiver. Right. So, and, I, and I think and that's, ultimately, and that's a process patent. It's not a technical patent, right? Yeah. I believe that would be a utility patent. Yeah. But the idea is that's what we're trying to have a very aggressive sales strategy because it's the first one who get in the door will get it because that's how the hotel industry works. They don't have to. Uh, they don't like to have a lot of capital costs. So once we go and install there, anyone, any other competitor comes in, they're too late. So that's why we want to spread it as, as fast as we can. And that's why we're charging only $40 for the retrofit. We're not charging more. Right. And I, and I think we'd like to provide a competitive advantage in the software services we offer as well. Um, so I think ultimately the lock is going to serve as our gateway into getting apps on phones and getting that customer experience between um, the customer and the hotel. So. Can you speak for a second about, I, I get the part about the locks, but it sounds like there's a lot of integration to the, the hotel management system, their desktop. What integration are you going to do, if any, to the hotel systems, of which there's probably many of them? Right. Um, actually, what's interesting about that is there, there aren't a lot of them that are major players. There's one um, called Opera that's really big and it's been around for a long time. It's kind of this old player that's been in the hotel industry for a long time. Um, so uh, they kind of have a competitive advantage because there are tons of um, interfaces that they work with and that sort of thing. So um, I think ultimately we'll try to interface with those property management systems like you mentioned um, and go that route as well. But, but for the first product, the, our, just the magnetic card key replacement, we don't need to integrate with any software at all. We're providing them our own software where they can create the keys, they can manage it, they can revoke it, they can do all sorts of things. That, that step where we integrate with the property management software, that comes out later when we add more features like check-in, check-out, and all, all those other features. There. And we're out of time, so we're going to have to move on to the next, next group. Great job, Sesame. I'd like you to meet Lydia. Lydia is a 50-year-old critical care nurse living in California. About five years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was scheduled to go through eight rounds of chemotherapy, intended to last four months. But halfway through her therapy, her, her low white blood cell counts put her at risk for infections. Some of them were life-threatening. Because she had a high fever due to her compromised immune system, her fourth session of chemo had to be postponed. This prolonged her treatment as a whole. Lydia's story is not uncommon among chemotherapy patients. About 70% of patients must change their treatment because of toxicities and start a different prescription. What's even worse, 1 in 10 will choose to stop therapy completely because their side effects are intolerable. Unfortunately, doctors can only guess how to treat patients based on demographic factors such as age, weight, height, medical history, and average toxicity response provided by drug companies. This is the best-case scenario for a conversation had by thousands of patients every day. You can see the reason this problem exists is that you, as a person, are not average, and that cancer drugs are approved through large-scale clinical trials with an average acceptable toxicity response for a given population. But most people don't have an average toxicity response. For example, some patients 
show very high levels of toxicity, which limits their treatment dose. Even if the drug is effective against cancer, that person's toxicity response limits the available dose. The cost of the average breast cancer treatment increases by 70% when the patient shows toxicity. For breast cancer alone, treatment-related toxicities add an additional $2 billion in healthcare spending every year. Out of every 10 breast cancer patients, seven must change their prescription, amounting to 86,000 people every year that have their prescription changed due to toxic side effects. This delays treatment when most patients can't imagine waiting to fight an advancing cancer and is compounded by the physical suffering and increased risk for whole body infections. What if there was a way that your doctor could give you the maximal effective dose without these excessive costs? ChemoGuard Diagnostics provides that personalized toxicity screening as a service for chemotherapy patients, which reduces the time to certainty for your prescription and minimizes your risk for complications. The comprehensive and personalized toxicity report complements your doctor's skills in prescribing the right drug at the ideal dose. The personalized solution begins with a single, minimally invasive skin punch biopsy at the time of diagnosis. From this skin sample, your own cells can be isolated and grown into the three main at-risk tissue types, heart, nerve, and bone marrow. Each drug will be scored according to its potency, allowing easy interpretation by your doctor. And by screening multiple potential therapies outside your body, we predict toxicities long before they become a problem. This results in a minimally invasive test with a six-week turnaround time, fast enough to make your fight against cancer systematically safer and more effective. You might ask, why isn't someone already doing this? Well, currently, there are generic methods such as echocardiograms and statistical risk models that can advise against chemotherapy, but these methods are poor predictors of toxicity. The closest competitors in the personalized chemotherapy space only assess efficacy and are costly out-of-pocket services that require invasive procedures. ChemoGuard is the only service that predicts your unique toxicity in a cost-effective and a minimally invasive way. The U.S. in vitro diagnostics market can be broken down into services, reagents, and instruments. The services component of this large market includes the $1.9 billion spent on cancer diagnostics and identifying targeted therapies for patients. Our initial target will be the $475 million spent for breast cancer patients receiving chemotherapy in the United States. And once established, we will expand to other high-risk cancers that represent the vast majority of the market. To prove the predictive accuracy of our assays, we will conduct a 12 to 18-month validation study. Our toxicity results will be correlated with the presence of each patient's measured toxicity at their routine checkup. The results of these studies will be presented at medical conferences and published in peer-reviewed journals. To keep our costs variable, we will contract lab space at UCSB Center for Stem Cell Biology, then expand into a full-size incubator space, such as the Ventura Biocenter in year two. Ultimately, we will operate a clinical laboratory that is certified under CLIA, or the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. With CLIA certification, our long-term vision is to personalize chemotherapy treatment for the 800,000 patients unaware of their own toxicities. ChemoGuard has submitted a provisional patent for the methods of screening chemotherapy drugs using patient-derived tissues. 
This test as service model currently does not require FDA approval because we are considered a low risk lab developed test. Pricing for our assays is based on the value we provide compared to the cost of toxicity related hospital visits. Given an initial investment of $400,000, we plan on validating our assays in 18 months and obtaining our first out of pocket paying customer by the middle of year two. Following a Series A round of $2 million toward the end of year two, we become profitable with CLIA certification and our first insurance paid customer by the middle of year four. Our gross margins approach 85% in the same year, with sales growing as we expand to cancer centers nationwide in year five. As we screen more patients through year three, we will develop a predictive database that, pr that provides toxicity results based on genotypic identifiers and classification tests reducing turnaround time from six weeks to one week. We will also compile a representative patient sample library that enables us to offer toxicity screening services to major pharmaceutical firms on a contract research basis. This reduces the turnaround from six weeks to two weeks. In working toward our first partnerships, we started the conversation with oncologists at the Santa Barbara Cancer Center. We will reach out to patients through advocacy groups such as the American Cancer Society and the Oncologist Nursing Society and after achieving CLIA certification in year two, we will be eligible for reimbursement by insurance companies. By year three, we will be partnering with pharmaceutical companies to offer translational toxicity screening for drug development. By year five, we will have positioned ourselves for a potential acquisition by a major diagnostics firm. We have formed an exceptional team to carry out the development of our business. Alex and Leticia are brilliant scientists with years of laboratory experience in neurobiology, cell culture and biochemistry. Alex Russell is starting his PhD in immunology at UCLA, an ideal launching point for ChemoGuard's validation study. Letitia Mueller currently conducts neuroscience research at UCSB and is planning on pursuing a career in personalized medicine. And Dayton Horvath is her master's student in chemistry with a minor in entrepreneurship and proven business development background. And I'm a fourth year graduate student focused on the mechanisms of chemotherapy-induced neurotoxicity. Our science advisor is Dr. Dennis Clegg, founder and director of UCSB Center for Stem Cell Biology and Engineering. Dr. Clegg is an expert in cellular reprogramming and is pioneering the first stem cell therapy for age-related blindness. Our medical advisor is Dr. Daniel Greenwald of the Santa Barbara Cancer Center, who treats hundreds of cancer patients each year. Our business advisor is Kathy O'Dell, who is currently the CEO of Nutra Health Partners. Kathy was the founding CEO of Inogen. Lastly, our regulatory advisor is K.N. Jenkins, who's the director of Qualtech Molecular Laboratories, a clinical research lab that specializes in personalized cancer diagnostics. K brings over 25 years of experience in CLIA lab management to our team. To summarize, you don't have an average toxicity response. This ends up costing 70% more of the course of a, of a typical treatment. ChemoGuard Diagnostics customizes your chemotherapy by providing a fast, cost-effective, and minimally invasive service with a six-week turnaround time. We have a strong technical team to execute on this opportunity. Thank you, and vote for tonight. So how have you validated that you don't need any FDA approval? And, I, and that, that may be one question for the diagnostic test itself, but another for the sampling, and another for the collection and shipping portion of that diagnostic test, because you're going to collect it in Fargo and and test it in your CLIA lab here in Santa Barbara or Ventura. So can you speak to that? 
Uh, I will answer your first question first. Uh, the reason why we believe we do not need the FDA approval for this test is because there are other services that are testing the efficacy of, of people's tumors. And uh, using uh, these CLIA-certified labs, they are able to test and Im- provide results that, uh, that are not, they're not regulated by the FDA. So the CLIA process means our lab has to have our training records, has to have um, our protocols in place. And so each lab is specialized and it has its own, its own CLIA approval. So we would be accepting these samples to our, our CLIA lab where we would run that test there. Can you speak to the sampling process and whether or not that requires a 510K? Sure. So the sampling process is a skin punch biopsy, which is a routine process to check for any number of conditions involving the skin. It's a 15-minute procedure, and the skin punch will then be transported to our lab, and this is, this, is, this is already being done, and there's an insurance code for this process as well. So you'll use somebody else's punch? You'll it buy it be, off the market. That's correct. It would be it would be the hospital technicians that would take that sample. In, they would they would stick it into our tube and it would get sent to our our laboratory. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I have a, just I'm just curious why the focus on the, on the breast cancer um, patients first. Was there a reason behind that? I'm sorry, you have to repeat the question louder. I'm oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you're focusing on breast cancer patients. Yes. Um, what, what, what brought you to those patients first? So, so breast cancer is a solid tumor type. And, and the types of drugs that we feel will be best uh, validated in our assays are those that treat solid tumors. Breast cancer is uh, 15% of all the cancers diagnosed worldwide, uh, in the United States. So we have 1.6 million bre- uh, people being diagnosed with breast cancer, about 15% of those. I'm, I'm sorry, 1.6 million diagnosed with cancer, 15% of those would be breast cancer. What's the competitive uh, solution today to do the test? Is there, a competitive, is there a competitive solution today to do this test in a similar manner, not with stem cells, but with some other process? Competitive solution. So, yes, there is what's called a, a colony-forming cell assay, which uses a generic stem cell model where these drugs are tested to, to look at how, how much they kill these stem cells. But we believe that that is a, is a generic approach and that is not personalized to each person's biology. So we believe the approach using each person's stem cells gives us the most accurate response for that exact person. And how much is that versus yours, and how much better is yours than that? How much better is ours than that? So we would need to confirm with our validation study to see how accurate our assays correlate with the actual incidence of these side effects in the clinic. So you haven't benchmarked your test versus the competitive test yet? Benchmark compared to competitive tests. That's, that would be our first step. Got it. Um, I'm looking at the financials here, and I, I, might, I might be reading it wrong. Um, but it says your, your gross margin is about 90%. Um, that seems rather high for what would appear to be a material-intensive sort of situation. Right. So our gross margins, um, they, they are calculated by the actual materials that we need to, to grow these cells. And growing cells is actually a very cheap process because you just need to buy media. So our cost of goods sold is actually very low. Our, our overhead is where we're going to be taking a lot of, the, of that cost away. Okay. Your, your go-to-market strategy, um, 
when you have a physician and an insurance company and a patient all making part of the decision, which one do you think is your customer and how are you going to get all of them convinced to, to get aboard on this project? So we're going to approach uh, our first customers, which are going to be out-of-pocket payers that are looking for the best treatment regardless of what the cost. And with these early adopters, we hope that we'll be able to build up our database and build our reputation to the point where we can get CLIA certified as we develop our own lab and ultimately, the insurance will be able to reimburse us once CLIA certification is in place. So we'll start with, with out-of-pocket paying customers and also work with oncologists who hopefully will be championing our service. And we've already spoken with a number of them locally and have been very receptive to the idea and see the value. Have you spoken to any insurance companies? So as of yet, no. Because um, first you have to be approved to be covered by Medicare. So we are in talks with the Center for Medicare Services. And I've discussed the roadmap um, with uh, the, the man in charge of uh, you know, uh, verifying and approving companies as they come. Um, and he said that we're about two years, like, down the road before we get CLIA certified and we get an insurance code, and after we get all those things, then we work towards insurance. But before then, it doesn't make sense to uh, get overly attached to insurance companies. Thank you. Got a couple minutes left. I was just, can you walk us one more time through the process on how you're going to accelerate the results uh, from six weeks to two weeks to obtain the, the, the results that you're seeking through the process? I'm not sure I completely understood the, how you would accelerate that. Right. So, so the idea is that after we have um, collected many samples that we can start sequencing and start finding out why do people have these toxicities. And that would be our database. So when we would receive the skin sample, we would sequence it and match that against our database so we'd have a quicker turnaround time to be able to provide patients with that service. And on the translational side, we would have uh, our frozen cell stocks where we would know how sensitive each one of these cell lines would be to these drugs in the past, and we would offer that to pharmaceutical companies developing new drugs so that they could have a process for assessing how, how much toxicity will our drugs show in clinical trials, uh, because that is one of the main reasons why drugs fail in clinical trials, is they show excessive toxicity. Great. Thank you. We have time for one more question. I'll take the highest bidder. Okay. Um, can you do the same type of test with blood? Yes. In fact, you have circulating stem cells that um, can be purified out of your blood, and uh, that is another option for us to do instead of the, the skin sample, although it takes a little bit longer. So we're looking at the fastest route to get to these cell types to do our testing. Is the Excellent. stem cell technology patented? Thank you. The stem cell technology that you're going to use to take skin and turn it into bone and, and heart cells, is that a patented or what you're trying to patent? So yeah, so if, here's our state of validation here. 
and all the processes for converting skin cells in, into these induced pluripotent stem cells have all been published in the literature. Uh, the one main patent was the was called the Yamanaka patent of 2008. This was the one that resulted in a Nobel Prize. That patent is current is currently being um, is current currently being reviewed on on obviousness claims. So we believe we have we, we will have freedom to operate by growing these cell these cells. Thank you. We're slightly nutty, not because we're crazy, but because that's the flavor of our product, cricket powder. I'm Megan Miranda, and these are my colleagues, Tyler Isaac and Jacob Skaggs. Together, our team is creating the world's most sustainable protein by using crickets fed on recycled organic waste. The, the demand for protein is increasing, but current methods of production are both insufficient and unsustainable to feed the future. The global population is going to increase by over 2 billion people by the year 2050. In addition to this, we have a growing middle class that's protein hungry. If you think about it, most people would prefer a steak to a broccoli dinner, if they can afford it. In order to meet, in order to meet this demand, we're going to have to double our protein production. But protein production strains the environment. In order to um, increase our livestock production, we're going to have to grow millions of tons of feed crops. But producing these crops is going to require us to convert an area twice the size of California to agriculture. In addition, this will lead to increased water use in already drought-stricken agricultural areas and other negative impacts. But crickets and insects are a sustainable protein solution. They can be fed on recycled organic waste, use few resources to grow rapidly, and provide ideal nutrition for both humans and animals. Cricket powder can be used to replace less sustainable alternatives, like soy meal, in products such as aquaculture feeds, poultry feeds, pet foods, and even feed humans. These are all multi-billion dollar industries, and they're all interested. For example, an aqua feed producer that we interviewed said if we had 20,000 tons of insect meal at $3,000 a ton, they would buy it from us today. However, producing 20,000 tons of insect meal requires over 20,000 tons of feed, significant infrastructure, and efficient operations at scale. This is both risky and difficult right out of the gate. So what did we do? We found a rapidly growing U.S. In industry that's gaining a lot of attention in national media for both its sustainability and nutrition benefits. This industry is largely composed of companies creating food products using cricket powder as a protein ingredient. It's a premium, high-margin high industry that's grown to $20 million in just three years and is continuing to grow much more rapidly. There's a lot of room for innovation and growth within this space because there's only four producers of cricket powder, but they all use chicken feed to feed their crickets. Chicken feed is largely composed of corn, wheat, and soy, which are all agricultural crops that we're trying to offset the production of by using insects. So our solution is to use pre-consumer organic waste as our feedstock. We've developed a proprietary blend of organic waste from local partnerships and have successfully used it to raise multiple generations of crickets. Our system is modular and we can reach industrial scale simply by replicating our successful process. What you get is a low-cost, truly sustainable, nutritious product that can be used in food and feeds. 
But what is cricket powder? It's just dried and powdered crickets. Nutritionally, it's 60 to 70 percent protein, contains healthy fats such as omega-3s and other micronutrients like iron, calcium, and B vitamins. And we have customers ready to buy our cricket powder. The two largest consumers, nutrition bar manufacturers Shapool and Exo, have written us letters of support stating willingness to buy our product as soon as we have it available. You may have seen Pat Crowley, the CEO of Shapool, on Shark Tank last year. He has since grown his company to earn over $1 million in annual revenues and has nationwide distribution. But why our cricket powder? As mentioned before, all other producers use chicken feed, which has soy as a large constituent. And it doesn't make sense to replace soy in products such as nutrition bars with crickets that are fed soy. So, we are the first and only producer of cricket powder using recycled organic waste. In doing so, we incur 30% lower costs than our competitors and produce a higher value product because of the sustainability benefits. So the market for cricket powder is brand new. It's projected to grow to just under $90 million in the next two years. The edible insect industry has been replacing things like soybean protein um, with cricket powder in their products like nutrition bars, baked goods, and snacks. The market for soy in nutrition bars, though, totaled $415 million last year and over $2 billion in all of these fortified foods. Because cricket powder is nutritionally and environmentally superior to soybean protein, there's plenty of room for the edible insect industry to continue growing. Our scale of production will bring the cost of production down to enable this growth and allow us to capture at least 20% of the cricket powder for consumer products market in our third year. In order to affordably supply the current and future markets for cricket powder, we've developed a business model that can produce large amounts of cricket powder at a low cost. We're starting lean by directly addressing a consumer problem. We're developing efficient channels of sourcing organic waste and distribution of our product, and we're scaling strategically. Our initial production warehouse will be a 25,000-square-foot facility here in Santa Barbara County that's optimally located to source waste from our local partners. Over our first three years, we, uh, we've reached maximum capacity within our warehouse to produce 1.3 million pounds of cricket powder each year by taking in over 7 million pounds of organic waste. Currently, we have 1 million pounds of organic waste available to us today from just three partners. And we're developing relationships in the local agriculture community to continue sourcing waste to meet our demand. In our third year, we're going to begin construction of a 50,000-square-foot warehouse. This will enable us to incorporate a secondary insect into our production process and increase our production by tenfold. In doing this, there's more than enough waste to justify scaling to this level in the surrounding counties. And again, this will continue driving the price of cricket powder down for us to enter larger markets like the pet food ingredients market. So the pet food ingredients market, you might think to yourself, crickets, Pets eat crickets. It's natural. We, <laughs> sorry. We, uh, we may have lower margins in the pet food ingredients market, but the volume is much larger than the projected, mar- or projected volume for cricket powder and consumer food products. There's already major pet food manufacturers trialing the use of insect powder in their products, and these products use over 3 million tons of animal protein ingredients each year. 
Our initial target market will be the pet fish food ingredients. So again, think about it. You go fly fishing, you see fish jumping for bugs. Fish are supposed to eat insects. After our expansion into our larger facility, we will be able to sell 14 million pounds of cricket powder into the pet food industry and continue growing our business volume and profits. So here's our finances over the first five years. In years one through three, or phase one, we will be supplying cricket powder to the high margin, low volume consumer food products industry. In our third year, our profits begin to slow and our leverage begins to decrease because we're occupying a larger facility to supply the larger volume, lower margin industries of pet food ingredients. However, our revenues and profits continue to grow, and by the end of our fifth year, we'll be earning net profits of $8.2 million. To get there, we have a little bit of work to do. We're seeking $20,000 to continue our R&D, which we have had an ongoing R&D operation at our lab in Santa Barbara, um, conducting growth and feed trials of crickets on this proprietary feed mixture. Once we complete our R&D over the summer, we intend to occupy a 10,000 square foot facility which will act as an operational demonstration plant where we'll be testing our uh, production scale assumptions. This will cost around $300,000 to construct and operate. We're putting the rest of our team together today, but right now we're composed of myself, Megan Miranda, and Jacob Skaggs. We're all master's students at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management here at UCSB, graduating this year, and we have over 30 years of combined experience in animal husbandry, agriculture, business, and marketing. We've developed three local partnerships with providers of waste from local food and beverage companies, and we're working with a company down in Los Angeles developing methods of stabilizing food waste from restaurants and supermarkets. This will enable us to continue growing our operation as we can seek large amounts of organic waste from a wide variety of sources. To complete our team, we're seeking an industrial designer that can help us to develop our warehouse, an entomologist to advise us as we develop methods of recycling food waste with insects, as well as financial board members and advisors. So there you have it. Our mission is to create a new food system paradigm. The world is in need of a more sustainable protein source in order to feed its growing population, and Slightly Nutty will lead the way. By recycling food waste and growing highly nutritious insects for both food products and animal feed, we change the global food system for the better. How does the international market compare with the U.S. market in terms of the, the valuation, the price of, of protein powder? So most protein powders are like more or less industrial commodities. And so when you were talking about food product ingredients like soybean protein isolate, it needs to be between $1 and $2 per pound. So one of the main reasons why we're targeting the edible insect industry in the U.S. right now, cricket powder is currently retailing for $40 per pound, and its wholesale rates are going for between $20 and $25. So we're targeting the high-margin industry to develop scale to bring that cost down to enter that international market. Thank you. What do you think your cost per pound will be once you get your demonstration plant up and running? Let me click a little bit. Um, so in our first year, the COGS per unit will be around $6.32, but because we can leverage all of the equipment that we have inside of our facility, by year four, when we're taking in upwards of 100 tons of food waste per day, our cost of production is lower than $1 per pound. You seem to be talking about a couple different markets. One is 
fairly high priced and then but when you get to the aquaculture and animal feeds and things those are pretty low co- our values per pound in you know really like 1% of that or 2% that seems like two different strategies one is a high price specialty market and one is a very low cost market how are you going to get there i mean that's that's a big reach so our initial facility of 25,000 square feet, we can gain some traction by selling into the higher margin industry that's developed here in the United States. Um, like I said, it's retailing right now for $40 per pound, and it's kind of a, a premium product like that. So with our COGS at $6.32 per pound in just our initial facility, we have really high margins to sit on that we can use those profits to develop the scale and move into that 50,000 square foot facility where we can continue leveraging our equipment and produce crickets and other insects at a very low cost. Thank you. You said originally that there are three or four other manufacturers today or producers of uh, chick- uh, the powder, um, and that your differentiation was your feedstock that you're going to give them, right? The organics. Um, what? What? Uh, how? How? The other competitors can do the same thing. So how are you going to defend yourself, and what's so different about that? Yeah. So as we mentioned, there are four other competitors that are making cricket powder in the market today, and. The challenge is that these organizations, basically two, th- two main things that make it challenging for these organizations to start using organic waste as a feed source for the crickets. The first one is they need to put in the time to, th- to do the scientific research and figure out what mixture of organic waste makes the cricket of the nutritional value that they want. You know, so mainly it's making a cricket that has a protein content or concentration of above 65%. That's the target. And that's challenging. Um, we've developed a proprietary blend that we've found um, is, is effective at, at creating a cricket that's high in protein. Secondly, um, it's, these organizations would have to develop partnerships with organizations or companies that are producing this organic waste in the quantities that they need. So our organization over the past year, we've, one, been doing this research to identify the right blend of, of organic waste, and two, we have partnerships to, 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 to source the organic waste that we need. So with those two advantages that we have, we feel we can stay in the front, the leading edge of this organization, um, of this industry, and continue to develop the most sustainable protein source and help all of our customers um, these nutrition bar manufacturers, baked good companies, um, truly susti- achieve their sustainability claims. How hard was that to find that recipe of the right mix of ingredients into the feedstock? I mean, how long did it take you to iterate on that? And, and you know, just how difficult was that? So we're still conducting research, and like you saw in the slides, we're asking for $20,000 to continue doing this research because there are lots of waste streams out there that can potentially be used as a uh, feed source for insects, um, crickets in particular. And um, this is something that we're, we're still continuing to do. Um, really, the advantage is, uh, let's see, organic waste such as spent brewer's grains and juicer's pulp these are currently used by, uh, by pig farmers, for example. They'll go to the back of these 
um, these producers and pick up this waste and take it away. And so we think that there's a strategic advantage by using this $20,000 to figure out a variety of organic wastes that aren't currently being used by pigs that could be consumed by crickets. And I think that's really where the advantage lies in the future. And that's what we'll be doing with our research. To follow up on that, um, in terms of difficulty, we've killed a lot of crickets, and (laughs) (laughs) it has not been easy. We've basically formulated our waste mixture to kind of mimic the nutritional composition of chicken feeds. And like Jacob said, the suitable waste that we found are actually in really high demand, and it's competitive. So we found that in this community especially, it's been easier for us to develop channels sourcing that waste, and we're continuing to develop alternative mixtures so that we can keep growing in scale. And I think, lastly, it's, it's also um, important to note that the, of the four main producers of cricket powder right now in the market, one, the, the most progressive of them, has contacted us um, expressing interest in partnering with us, given the fact that they see the value in the research that we've done. So we really feel like we're on the leading edge of doing this research, and, and we plan to continue doing that. A quick question. With the exponential growth in the uh, organic labeled foods market, does it make sense and would it provide you with higher margins to, fo- to produce organically fed crickets? Uh, by organic, I mean... Um... So there's currently no regulations in the United States or the EU right now that's governing the production or the consumption of insects in general. And so there's definitely no regulations governing what constitutes an organic insect versus a non-organic insect. Um, We find that by doing what we're doing and including organic waste streams as a feedstock into this production process, it makes more sense to call this an organic cricket because what crickets do is they eat organic waste, they eat detritus, versus something that's being uh, fed a chicken feed, even though the chicken feed is organic, there's still no standards right now dictating what an organic cricket is. So we think that our process can fit in under that potential definition as well. And if we could find large enough volumes of purely organic waste, we would love to do that too. We've got time for one more. I've got one. Can you feed feed crickets to sharks? To sharks? Sharks. Oh, these guys. Well, in fact... We have a few cricket protein bars if you're interested in trying them. We were waiting for that over here, by the way. These are the products of the companies that have given us letters of support, um, and they're quite delicious, and as I like to say, they'll put a jump in your step. I did not know that was going to happen. Can I follow up on that? Yes. So we've tabled at several events um, downtown for the Earth Day Festival and at the All Gaucho Reunion here on campus, and we've received excellent um, interest from from people. So about 90% of the people that came up to our booth tried the bars and loved them, and about 30%, this surprised us, about 30% tried the raw cricket powder that's being produced. And the, the... Overwhelmingly, the, the response was very positive. They said it tasted slightly like hulled uh, sunflower seeds or cashews or, or slightly nutty. And so we're very confident that taste and preferences are going to change through time, and, and this industry is going to grow, and we want to be at the forefront of it. And we got kid approval. They liked it. Okay, next we have 
Team Cognate. I think we can do better than that. We're Cognate. We're establishing a new dimension of remote collaboration. To illustrate the problem and our solution, let me give you an example scenario. Imagine you're in charge of a complex piece of industrial equipment that's essential to your business operations. If this piece of equipment breaks down, your company is losing thousands of dollars by the hour. If it breaks down, chances are the person who knows how to fix it is not going to be on site. So what do you do? You can fly that person in, which is slow and costly, or you can try to fix it with telecommunication. So here you are, standing next to this piece of equipment, describing the problem to a remote expert. That expert is listening to your description verbally and trying to give you a verbal response. Now, here's the issue with today's telecommunication tools. They're inadequate for this type of situation because even if you're using a video chat, you're relegated to the viewpoint of the local user and the expert can only give verbal instructions. You've probably said this to yourself before. If I could just point to it, it's right there. But in this case, the expert cannot. And so what happens? Frustration, slow and costly travel, and machine downtime. Now, based on cutting-edge research at UCSB, we've developed a solution that addresses these problems. What I'm going to show you here is a video of software being run on a tablet. So this is Cognate software. And what's happening is the local user's scene is being rendered in 3D to a remote expert. It's encoded and transmitted, and... The remote expert can navigate the scene and choose a viewpoint that suits him best. Additionally, he can draw on the scene to give spatial instructions to the local user. Those drawings are immediately transmitted and stabilized in 3D for the local user. Another thing that I want to point out is this is a software solution, so it doesn't require a specific piece of hardware. You can even use the devices that are in your pocket right now. So I want you to consider for a second the impact that telecommunication had on the office environment. Suddenly, board meetings could proceed without everyone being physically present. Cognate is taking that a dimension further and bringing the impact of collaboration into the field. So imagine for an instant right now that you could teleport out of this room to a remote location give a few instructions, and teleport back. That's what we let you do. So with our ability to provide more efficient, less frustrating remote support, improve repair success rates, and reduce machine downtime, as well as, well as reduce the need for experts to travel, we're taking the trouble out of troubleshooting. This is the new telecommunication. Moreover, we offer more than the competitors at this point. So current video conferencing solutions 
The most advanced feature that they offer is drawing on video, which becomes irrelevant as soon as the camera moves. We also offer video uh, drawings that stay put in 3D space, active viewpoint control, which means that the remote user can explore the scene independently of the local user's viewpoint, and you can revisit the scene later on in 3D. People love us as well. So this is an excerpt of user studies conducted at UCSB by members of our team. As you can see, 80% of users think that Cognate's 3D stable drawings are extremely helpful. Additionally, eight out of 10 people prefer a user interface with Cognate's technology over the competition. So in our customer discovery process, we've determined that capital equipment field servicing is a promising initial target market segment, both for business-to-business and in-house support. So envision a situation where a maintenance worker needs needs to contact an in-house specialist regarding a weird machine state, or maybe an installation technician needs to contact the manufacturer uh, about an HVAC system, or a contractor needs to talk to the supervising engineer about a project. Well, through our various conversations with many companies, we've determined that these are relevant situations where our software would be helpful. Now, there are between three and five million workers of these professions in the United States, and companies spend upwards of $100 billion on their services annually. A particular metric of concern for these companies is first-time repair failure, which is when a technician fails to fix a problem on first attempt. Because they have to return to the setting, this is estimated to cost over $10 billion annually, which suggests a huge market need for technology that can alleviate this repair failure even a little bit. So how are we going to capture this market? Well, our solution is well-suited for a software-as-a-service revenue model. We charge individual professional users $50 per month, but we also offer custom licensing models where you can perhaps have an asymmetric use case where the receiving help client is free, but the providing help client costs money, or for hosting specific 3D models or content for manufacturers, or for providing APIs for branding and integration into third-party software. Now, I mentioned that we've talked to a lot of companies, but I want to highlight three that, in particular that are promising as emerging partnerships. Local company InTouch Health is a key validator of our business case. They have uh, a fleet of complex robots that require rigorous field service maintenance to maintain 100% uptime 24-7, 365. They also have uh, partnerships with nationwide consulting services that we are in touch with, and those will serve as our key first-paying customers. And so InTouch is interested in our technology, and so are they. Additionally, Citrix is a worldwide leader in video collaboration technology, and they've expressed keen interest in our solution across a wide variety of uh, platforms in their company. Our partnership with them will enable us to scale globally quickly. WorldViz is a leader in virtual reality technology, and we're actually going through the first steps right now of integrating our solution into their platforms for sale to customers. And so we have meetings with all three of these companies pending for the coming weeks. Here's our current status and a go-to-market strategy timeline. Currently, we have a fully functional prototype. We have one patent filed and a second one in preparation. We've established ongoing partnerships. So over the next nine months, 
we're going to leverage these partnerships to finish a complete commercially viable product and continue filing patents to maintain a competitive advantage. Moving into year two, we're, under, we're going to undertake pilot projects with interested companies and keep iterating on our design so that we can roll out the product in the middle of year two. Here's what this means financially. We've projected our revenue for the, fir- for the next four years, and if you overlay costs, you can see that we've become profitable sometime in the middle of year three. And this is true for a variety of revenue projections based on our sensitivity analysis. All told, we need about $800,000 to finance the first three years of development. So right now, we're focusing on the business-to-business marketplace, and in particular, capital equipment field servicing. But as we gain traction with that, we envision moving to the business-to-consumer marketplace, where companies like Cox Communications or Best Buy might be able to help their customers with problems at home. Moving forward, we can even envision going to the consumer-to-consumer marketplace, where you could take a standard face-to-face video chat and make it a space-to-space collaboration. Here's a brief overview of our team. The members on the left all have technical expertise in computer vision and augmented reality state-of-the-art research, as well as experience in many world-renowned computer companies. They invented this technology. On the, on the left, you can see all of us have engineering backgrounds, and two of us have prior entrepreneurial experience in startups. So with our combination of technical expertise and business experience, we believe we're well-poised for success. We are Cognate. We provide more efficient, less frustrating remote support. We improve repair success rates and reduce machine downtime, and we reduce the need for experts to travel. We're developing a new dimension of remote collaboration, and this is the future of telecommunication. Thank you. Good job, Cognate. Judges, turn to you. Um, Your uh, 3D visualization and your relationship with InTouch is, is this applying the 3D visualization to the InTouch telemedicine portfolio? Portfolio. So that's a complicated question. I appreciate you asking it. So to clarify, InTouch does telemedicine, telemedicine and they um, provide robots that uh, allow doctors to commute in. And so we're not actually integrating our solution for them. This is more for them to actually keep maintenance on okay. their robots. Gotcha. So it's useful for them as a maintenance tool. Gotcha. Can you describe how, how far along you are with those partnerships? I think at one point you said you have partnerships established, and then you said there was a meeting next week or next month. Sure, yeah. Um, so with WorldViz, we actually have the initial aspects of the agreement um, ironed out. Mm-hmm. And when I said meetings, I just mean that we're just talking to engineers to figure out how to continue integrating our software. I, I don't know if that... Is that focused on, on the operation of the equipment, or have you talked about the business model and, and validated the pricing and how they might want to um, be a customer? Sure. Um, well, as for InTouch Health, we are first going to meet with our engineers and kind of discuss how the API will work um, through um, like security-type issues. And then we're, after we meet with them and work out how it's going to be integrated with their current existing technology, we'll move on to the um, pricing model. 
Thank you. Who do you see as your primary competitors? I mean, there are a lot of uh, collaboration tools that are related to visualization and 3D imaging, and so who do you who do you see as your competitor? And and how are you, you know, superior? So we have uh, we have identified at least these three main competitors: uh, LibreStream, VipAR, and ResolutionTube, because they all also target the um, areas of uh, field ma service maintenance technicians. Uh, however, uh, as you see here, they all offer the drawn video capability, but they don't offer the 3D uh, capability that the drawings stay put in 3D space. So once you move the video, the, the, 3D, uh, the drawing does not make sense anymore. Additionally, we have active viewpoint uh, control, so that means that the remote user, he can take on a different viewpoint from what the person who's physically with the machine is looking at. He can take a different viewpoint based on what um, the local user has seen before, and you can vi revisit the scene later. So with these uh, value uh, propositions that we add, we believe that uh, we have a better, um, we have a very good um, situation with respect to our competitors. Right, you don't, you don't depend on the remote user's field of view. You can go and essentially look around and move around an object from a remote location. And this, and this is exactly what allows us to communicate spatial information as well as we can. <clears throat> and, and what's uh, patentable there? Like what's, you know, defensible IP? So the patent that we have uh, that is pending uh, has to do with the uh, upper left there, creating the 3D model from the live video. So the way the technology works is that it creates the 3D model, and that's how we can anchor these annotations in 3D space and also provide... Uh, active viewpoint exploration. And our second patent covers the rest of these uh, aspects on this slide, uh, mainly the user interface with the uh, drawings that stay put and also the active viewpoint exploration. Is it like a stitching algorithm or something that's putting everything together? Or what is, what's the core of it? The core of it is something you can uh, call simultaneous localization and mapping or computer vision structure for motion. It's basically triangulating so. 3D points and building a 3D point cloud which is a 3D model, and based on that uh, 3D model, then you can anchor it in 3D space. It's different than uh, just pure image stitching, if you're familiar with the computer vision um, community, like panoramas. And do you violate anyone's patents that's doing that already? Excuse me? Are there any patents that you're violating or potentially violating that are doing that similar process? Not that we know of. <laughs> Your, your technology is quite impressive, and as are your academic credentials, PhD, computer science, PhD, computer science, PhD materials, PhD, computer engineering, uh, on and on and on. Um, and the, the application that I first saw, which is, is a very logical one, was, was a guy repairing a combustion turbine. Are you considering expanding your team to somebody that could actually talk to that guy? <laughs> I think one of them is that guy. <laughs> what? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right answer. <laughs> Are you applying, is that a question Craig? About, <laughs> is that a question about their business model, Craig? <laughs> yeah, it's that right hand of the canvas there, you know. 
Are, are you asking if we're looking to take somebody on the team? or No, I'm sorry. There's an origin of the question here. We've seen so many brilliant people and companies and technologies that failed because they didn't have the ability to um, communicate and, and understand the application and, and therefore died. Well, so I'm in the materials department. I actually have colleagues that work on jet engines, so okay. I've got a connection. <laughs> Any other questions? Just in, in the, the, on the practical, the implementation side, uh, what are your um, repair technicians telling you? Have, have you interviewed them as far as, are they, are they saving an incredible amount of time by being able to have access to this 3D modeling versus just the regular video? Uh, is, there, what's the val- is there a true value add to them as a, as a repair technician? Yes, definitely. Uh, the main thing that it's alleviating is the need to travel, especially for sort of mundane tasks. Uh, one that always pops into my head is uh, you know, maybe a car mechanic who needs to go figure out that you know, the steering wheel is locked and you can't ignite the engine because of it, which is something that you could communicate if you could point to it. But a lot of times... Describing it over the phone might not work. So, yeah, it really is alleviating the need to travel. And not just like that would be like a business to consumer application, but um, as for actual field service technicians, we have spoken to um, one of the slideshows like carrier vibrating, um, Procore, um, ABB. Um, we've spoken to a lot of field service technicians and field service managers from those companies, and travel time is like a large part of their expenditures, but they have been looking into figuring out technology to replace that. Some of them already use things like Skype or FaceTime, but they still feel that it really doesn't give, doesn't, isn't a great replacement for actually being there in person. But um, when we showed them like the ability to actually spatially navigate and interact with a remote uh, environment, they, they're like awestruck. Got time for one more? I think we're all set. Great job, Cognate. <laughs> Next up, we have Team Insight. We are Insight. Uh, as I said, my name is Katie. We also have Matthew and Rush. Uh, And we are a group of PhDs that have expertise in the fields of cognitive psychology, computer science, and engineering. And we are combining that expertise in order to provide an analytics tool for content developers that's based off of eye-tracking data that will guide them during their design process. So I'm going to start it off with an example. Uh, So I want you to take a look at these two different designs. These are designs that were created by a company, and I want you to imagine that uh, that you're the decision maker that's going to determine which version of the website is going to drive more traffic to click on the blue button in the bottom left-hand corner. So while you're looking at these two designs, I can tell you that if you're like me, uh, you may be feeling like this is a very important decision, but you need more data in order to answer this question. Uh, And so if you're feeling any sort of uncertainty, you understand the problem that a lot of content developers face. And it's that they lack granular tools in order to assess their designs and answer questions like the one I just posed to you. So to give you a feel for the size of this problem, as of 2014, there were nearly 1 billion websites in creation. So we can see that there are a lot of developers of content that want to make sure that their designs are as effective as possible. And not only that, they want to make sure that their design stands out from the hundreds of millions of other websites that are in creation. 
So if you wanted to answer the question of whether or not your design is effective, what are the tools that you could use these days? First, you could form a focus group or you could send out a survey. As a psychologist, I can tell you that you run the risk of getting biased data. Uh, and this also is very difficult. It's qualitative data, and it's difficult to summarize and extract information from. So another approach is to use mouse tracking analytics. Unfortunately, this requires a large volume of traffic through your website, uh, and it also only tells you the end result of some sort of decision process. So you get to see where somebody clicked, but you don't get to see any of the information gathering process that happened in between those clicks. So a superior tool is to actually use eye tracking. And so let me tell you a bit about what eye tracking is. So up on the screen we have an example, or we have a picture of an eye tracker, and Matthew is also holding an eye tracker in his hands. You can see that it's a very small device. This device simply sits on the front of your computer screen, or it could sit in the curve of your laptop, and it just tracks what you're looking at while you're viewing content on your screen. So in this way, eye tracking can tell you exactly what you're paying attention to, sometimes more importantly, what you're ignoring, and it sort of gives insight into uh, a user's thought process while they're interacting with content. So why is eye tracking such a beneficial tool? First off, it's objective. It's driven by automatic user behavior. So as soon as you land on a web page, within a single second, you've already made three eye movements to various things that caught your eye. This amount of data is very important for designers to get their hands on so they see what's capturing your attention. It's also very granular. So the problem that I told you with mouse tracking data, where you only see where somebody clicked and not what happened in between those process, that process, eye tracking can tell you what happens between the clicks. Finally, it's perceptual. So it gives you a look into a user's thought process. Uh, so for example, if I'm viewing a web page and I'm confused or distracted in some sort of way, that's going to show up in the eye tracking data, but it would not show up in any of the other analytics that I've, that I've talked about. So, uh, eye tracking is a very powerful tool. Eye tracking with insight is even better. And the reason is because we're combining cutting edge theories from cognitive psychology along with intelligent algorithms coming out of computer science. These two things come together to, to construct our proprietary analytics software. So we're taking behavioral data, we're training machine learning algorithms on that data, and that is what comprises our analytics tool. So what does this mean for our clients or for the companies that, that use us? Ultimately, when they have more effective design, this translates into increased revenue for them, better conversion rate, more money in their pocket for a given design. So how does this process work? Clients can send us content in the form of still images, websites, or videos. We then uh, we disseminate that content to what we call our insight crowd. And these people have been equipped with eye trackers in their homes. They get paid to view and interact with the material. We then take that data, run it through our proprietary analytics software, uh, and then send a report back to the client that has very easy to understand information in it. It has insights that they can take away to uh, modify their designs. So a few things that I want to emphasize about this process. First off, we are very much a software company. We're not a consulting company or a hardware company. So the analytics that I'm describing, uh, they're completely automated and do not require any intervention by us in order to run. Second off, we don't need a large sample size in order to get these analytics that I'm describing to you. We need as few as five people to create these analytics for a particular test. So all of this underlies a process that is very scalable. So as we start to get more content from our clients, it's easy and inexpensive for us to 
increase the size of our crowd. Uh, and like I said, the, the analytics are entirely automated. Uh, so there's no bottlenecks anywhere in the cycle that I'm showing you on the screen. Uh, and then our expertise as PhDs makes up a huge uh, portion of the value that we're offering behind the analytics. So to give you a little more information about us, as I said, I'm Katie. I'm getting my PhD in cognitive psychology. Uh, I've been studying visual perception and working with eye trackers for the past five years. Uh, we also have Matthew, who's getting his PhD in computer science. He is an expert in human-computer interaction and has also been working with eye trackers for the past few years as a part of user interfaces. Finally, we have Rush, who recently received his PhD in engineering, uh, and he is bringing his expertise in automated algorithms and analytics to the team. And with that, I'm actually going to hand it over to Rush to talk about the market opportunity. Thanks, Katie. This Thanks, Katie. So we already saw how powerful Insight can be for web developers. And if we were to just target this market alone, we expect our potential value market to be around 300 million. But really, we can target anybody that has digital content development. So that could be internal marketing groups that are concerned with lead generation to uh, the development of their own websites to ad agencies who are concerned with print ads and on-air copy material. So as soon as you start looking at all the other potential digital content developers out there, our actual valued market becomes quite large. And we feel we can grab a large portion of this market for several reasons. Not only do we not only do we provide what our okay, that's not up there. So not only do we provide what our uh, our competitors provide, such as mouse click data, but with the added value of eye tracking, user comments, and a sophisticated array of analytics that ties us all together, we really provide you another level of granularity that allows you to make the best decision possible to increase your revenue. And not only are we providing all this uh, added value, we're also providing it at a much more cost-effective price point. So now it opens up to people who've always wanted to use a tool like this, but just couldn't afford it before. Now these price ranges we uh, validated through competitor analysis as well as through extensive interviews, and we're currently in the process of beta testing their true elasticity. But what we do know is regardless of the price we settle on, we'll be moving to a uh, subscription-based model as we uh, go into launch. Now, given this pricing structure, uh, this is our expected revenue growth over the next three years. Now, to give you a better idea what this means, we're expecting around 13 million in sales by the end of our third year. This corresponds roughly to about 4,000 customers. And to achieve that growth, we're going to do a three-tiered uh, process to achieve it. So we're going to begin by beta testing uh, to validate some of our key features, as well as uh, um, start building our crowd of testers. And then as we go into launch, those initial beta testers will likely be our first clients, where we'll also be initially targeting web developers, uh, because we've already gotten heavy validation that they're very interested in this product, and we feel they're going to be an easy market to penetrate. Uh, and once you've built a solid client base with web developers, then we'll be expanding into other digital content markets, such as uh, the ad agencies and internal marketing groups, like I had mentioned before, to really hope, uh, hopefully see a, a rapid growth from there. So to get this all started, we'll need around... 50,000 to get us through beta testing, and that's mainly to just hire and build our testers, as well as do some early development. And then as we're going into launch, we'll need around 200,000 to hire certain key personnel, as well as build the infrastructure necessary to really become a scalable business. So in all of this, where are we now? We already mentioned that we're three PhDs, and we have the technical skills to bring a really valuable product to market. Uh, but currently, we're also seeking out a fourth member with more executive experience to better round out the business side of our team. We also have a prototype already working, and we're beta testing with these five companies, two of which are the prominent design firms Chico and Louis, based out of New York, as well as Zachary Ross Designs, based out of Los Angeles. And they've already had very promising things to say about us. So I just want to uh, 
summarize by reminding you that the digital landscape is huge and it's constantly growing. Content developers currently don't have the right tools to know what their end users are actually doing. Insight solves that problem. By using a cutting edge array of analytics, we let you know what your user is seeing, allowing you to make the best design decision possible to increase revenue. Um, we're very excited about bringing this product to market. We hope that we've gotten you excited about this product as well. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your time and we'll take questions. Are these paying clients the ones you show on the screen right now? Uh, no, they are not. So we are currently beta testing uh, with them and not charging them. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I like the idea of going out to the web designer. They're, they're probably a very savvy group and willing to take on new technology. But I struggle with how they're going to take, say, a heat map and convert that into advice to a client on how to change content which is very marketing and psychology-driven type stuff um, versus their skill set, which is more technology. Can you speak to that a minute? Yeah. Should I? Okay. Yeah, so what we're hoping to do during the beta testing process uh, is essentially we have a lot of ideas of what sort of data to provide to these companies, and we want to figure out how to translate it into something that they easily understand uh, and that will give them just sort of a list of insights that they can take away from the data. Uh, and then part of that is also going to be uh, using not so tr traditional analytics, but partnering our behavioral data with machine learning algorithms uh, in order to sort of make key predictions based on user behavior. Uh, so we can actually say, you marked this particular region of interest based on the eye movement behavior there, we think that your users were confused. And this is a very actionable result for these designers to then modify things. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the IP? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. So um, we've actually we met with a law group in town, <clears throat> and um, uh, we've come to the conclusion that the, the algorithms, the analytics that we, we're going to be producing are um, likely patentable, um, and even more so because uh, we are working with this hardware device right here. Um, so th that's, that's what we're looking for in terms of um, patentability. Have you considered selling like A/B testing as a way to, uh, you know, start this instead of just uh, the heat map? Yeah. So you're saying sort of market it more as a traditional A/B testing tool? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think I think it would be a possible thing that companies could set up. So they can send us as much content as they want. Uh, so they could essentially send us, like the example we showed, two kind of similar versions of a design, and then they can contrast the results that they're getting. Uh, and hopefully in beta testing, if we find out that this is really what they're after, we can set up more of a, an interface that, that uses that type of result. Got it. So today uh, the customers are just... Um you're, you're, you're just getting their feedback on how they're using it and what you would deliver to them as a report. Yeah, so I would say that in the, so we've, we've conducted quite a few interviews with potential users, and we're finding that they are very interested not so much in comparisons as much as just getting data and kind of understanding how users are interacting with their content. Um, so heat maps, even without A-B testing, is something that they're very interested in. And have you contacted any of the traditional um, uh, 
heat map companies because there's a whole little industry around heat mapping as it relates to your mouse um, and told them that you could upsell customers on this? Sorry, say that last part. Have you talked to the traditional heat mapping, mouse tracking companies? There's, you know, five big ones. Um, and, and, and layered on the visual a- analytics to their products to see if you could use them as a channel? Oh, I see. So, okay, so you're saying, have we, have we thought about partnering with the sort of existing exactly. analytics companies? Um, yeah, so... We hadn't thought about partnering with them. We kind of just because the eye tracking data is is so powerful, and we can also provide the traditional analytics in addition to that. Uh, we are hoping to just sort of roll this out as a product that's independent of any existing analytics company. Yeah. So you see them as more competitive, right? Like Correct. version one zero, year two zero, kind of thing. Correct. Got it. Normally when I see a focus group, there's a lot of different attributes that uh, a client might be going for. They might be going for age, education, income, sex, whatever, um, or gender, I should say. Um, you have... <laughs> You're right the first time. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Screwed me up. <laughs> so um, in your testing group, you mentioned that you'd only have five. That doesn't seem statistically valid. Have you thought about expanding your testing groups to have more you know, granularity like that? Uh, yeah, so five observers that where you're constantly recording eye tracking data actually produces a, a large quantity of data, uh, and you are able to get statistical significance for certain questions out of that data, but the point you raise is very good. Um, so depending on what the client is trying to understand, there is sometimes a need to use larger groups, uh, and that's, that's not a problem for us. So we, we do have the capability of doing that. I noticed in your financial model that you're testing costs are very, very low. And I was wondering if they would make minimum wage when I was looking at it. Can you speak to how they're going to be compensated? Sure. So we're paying uh, the testers uh, per test that they run. So this is a very similar model to something like usertesting.com does. So we're really... So we're, we're estimating that a tester makes around $270 a month. It's not a lot. We're not, like, paying them, like, a full salary. They're literally testing in their free time. It's sort of like a micro-task model, uh, similar to like Mechanical Turk, right. something that you might do in your free time. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, given that smartphones are rapidly overtaking desktops and laptops in terms of screen views and eyeballs and just about every other metric, what, um, well, can you speak to the fact that we aren't going to be doing any any eyeball tracking with a smartphone, I'm presuming not anyway, so that the lessons that you learn for a desktop or, or a laptop as a web developer would, I would think, would not necessarily be uh, transferable to a smartphone. Uh, so that's uh, somewhat true, and then uh, there are some things that are actually, uh, that do translate from developing on desktops that do translate to phones. And <clears throat> As it turns out, uh, they are actually like incorporating eye trackers into smartphones uh, fairly soon, well, soon being the next several years. And we've already had that on our radar and have already like started uh, sort of working with that. And so 
Yeah, sorry, can you rephrase the question? <laughs> Here, I like let, lost let my turn. <laughs> let me jump in. Uh, so, yeah, so I think we're, we're initially targeting content that will be displayed on a computer screen. Uh, the company that's providing this eye tracker this summer is hopefully coming out with one that will work for a mobile device. So we don't expect that the results are going to translate directly into mobile, um, but we will move into tracking mobile content as soon as the hardware becomes available. Okay. We've got time for one more. So have you looked at all into uh, facial expression recognition technology, which I've uh, read a little bit about, and how would that be something you could incorporate into your existing software? Um, yeah, so um, we, we thought about incorporating other sorts of perceptual data. Um, at one point, we were thinking about EEG um, and, and this other sort of thing. When we talked to customers about this, when we actually started validating this, um, when we were talking to graphic designers, they just wanted to know, you know, where they wanted, where people were looking. They, this emotional, this other sort of um, data that you can get, they weren't so into. Um, so we we just kind of invalidated that um, for our clients. Yeah. Any quick follow-up questions? In the later years, you have a big jump in your revenue. Um, can you speak to how you're changing your market, your target market focus at that time? Mm -hmm. So we are, we are actually, uh, so we're just doing the, the web developers initially, and then after that, we're actually increasing our revenue substantially into ad or direct sales marketing into several other channels. So that's where we're seeing that rapid growth. Thank you. Thank you, Team Insight. Great job. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Imberman. This is Evan Strink, Bob Lansdorp, and Nets Arroyo. And we are Milo. We are in the middle of a sensor revolution. In recent years, there has been an explosion in personalized and wearable technologies all aimed at optimizing our lives. Things like fitness, comfort, productivity, and personal entertainment are now all being handled by intelligent systems that learn as much from us as we do from them. So in the middle of this technological and cultural shift, here's where we fit in. Many of you have heard of the recent rise in health sensors, things like Fitbit that track your activity and monitor your heart rate to promote a healthy lifestyle. Well, within this recent rise in health sensors, there's also been a growth in safety sensors, more specifically, alcohol sensors, or as you might know them, personal breathalyzers. Some of you might be wondering, why would I want a personal breathalyzer? Well, in the same way that counting your calories allows you to make intelligent decisions as far as your eating habits, getting consistent and accurate feedback on your blood alcohol level empowers you to make informed and intelligent decisions as far as your alcohol moderation. In recent years, with the rise of smartphones and wearable technologies, there's been a boom in this market. From 2005 to now, it has grown from a 27 million to a projected $2 billion industry, and is expected to reach a market size of $3.2 billion by 2018. More importantly, these products have the potential to save lives. Now, some of you have heard of our competitors, things like Backtrack, Alkahoot, Breathometer, and Flume. And all of these products work fine. <laughs> but they all have the same problem. They're all breathalyzers. 
Breathalyzers are reactive systems. They can only tell you how impaired you already are and do nothing to prevent you from getting to that point. They are highly involved with a multi-step process just to get one readout, and they rely on the personal responsibility of people who have been drinking. <laughs> Not to mention, they're kind of awkward. With all of these factors in mind, we thought there had to be a better solution, and we found one. Milo is the first wearable blood alcohol sensor that monitors your blood alcohol through your sweat. Milo is a proactive solution, not a reactive solution. To use our system, all you need to do is put on your favorite shirt, apply cologne, conservatively, put on your Milo wristband, and go enjoy yourself responsibly. So for those of you who are wondering how this actually works, you may not realize it, but you are actually sweating in small amounts all the time. When you've been drinking, your body uses this perspiration to release ethanol from your system. We've developed a sensor that converts this ethanol into electricity and can read those electrical values to create a blood alcohol level for you. To use, to use our wristband, all you need to do is set up the Milo app, where you'll be greeted by a friendly home screen that tells you your current blood alcohol level, set alarms so that you can receive alerts when you reach target blood alcohol levels, set up some pre-designated buddies so if you reach a dangerously high level, they'll be notified with your location and a message saying that you might need some help. <laughs> Put it on your wrist and forget about it. We got you covered. Now, when it came to target market, we ran into a very interesting issue in that there is a very wide potential market for this product. So we decided to start with a much more directed approach, take a small initial target market, and then branch out as we improve our distribution and manufacturing capabilities. So our initial target market is age 21 through 25, currently an American college student, consumes alcohol regularly, and owns a smartphone. This brings us to an initial target market of six million potential customers. These customers are highly vocal about the products that they use, and as they matriculate into the working world, we will suddenly have a large number of young urban professionals all using our product. Upon doing consumer insight, over 100 people in our market and 40 parents of people in our market, we found overwhelming support for our product. We also found that they wanted it to be discreet, reusable, 50 to $100, and reliable, and boy did we deliver. The Milo starter kit will be sold for $65. Refill cartridges will be sold five for $10 and 10 for $18. Both of these products are sold at very healthy margins when sold direct to consumer, and with mass scale and research and development, we can bring these prices down further, leaving plenty of room for retail partners. Each cartridge lasts one use. This is a fact of the chemistry as to how these actually work, but it also works in our benefit as it creates a recurring revenue model. When it comes to our go-to-market, our year one is going to be purely product development, getting it ready, getting it attractive, getting it working as well as possible before we hit the market. We're then going to start year two with a limited social media campaign and mostly working through a college campaign where we have college representatives, endorse college events, and try to get universities on board with this product so that they will also endorse this. 
Eventually, we plan to work with e-commerce sites like Amazon and Walmart and retailers, particularly university stores, so that when parents move their students in in the fall, they'll see this product, they'll understand the safety value, and they'll buy it for their students. Eventually, we plan to work with mass retailers and overseas partners. With our profit and revenue, we actually project to be profitable within our first year of selling, which is year two. This is based on getting a 0.5% market penetration of only California college students, and also based on a 50% recidivism rate where half the people who buy the product will continue to buy refill cartridges. We've estimated through speaking with manufacturers, suppliers, and engineering firms that it will cost us $500,000 to get from where we are now with a working wearable prototype to a finished product. These costs include engineering, which are miniaturization, setting up mass manufacturing, and setting up the tooling for mass manufacturing, and testing and data acquisition, which involve consumer insight and getting enough data from users um, to use machine learning to get this product as accurate and reliable as possible. As far as future plans, we see multiple opportunities for advertising partnership with transportation and food-based applications, and we also hope to eventually license out this technology to other wearable devices. We've developed a, a highly technically diverse team, each of which are essential to this product. We have Evan Strength, our head of business. Evan currently works at Deckers in their design and innovation de department, and he is in charge of marketing and product design. Bob Lansdorp, our head of engineering, has over three years of experience as a process engineer and currently works as a PhD student in material science. We have myself. I am a master's student in computer science. My background is in machine learning and big data. And I've worked in, for companies such as Apple and Commission Junction, optimizing their big data infrastructure. And we have Dr. Nets Arroyo, who is our scientific advisor, who has over 10 years of experience in electrochemistry and is currently a postdoctorate at UCSB. Since we've started this project, we've created a working wearable prototype. We have here an image of a subject wearing the prototype, and we also have actual data of the subject using the prototype. So as you can see from the point where they take 4.5 fluid ounces of alcohol, there's a one hour diffusion time, at which point you see a massive spike in the readouts from our device. At two hours, there is a peak concentration, and then they slowly move back to sobriety. Not only have we created a working wearable prototype, we've also gotten our patent pending, created a fast-paced, technically diverse team, and gotten preliminary quotes from manufacturers and suppliers so that we have a well-drawn-out roadmap to get from where we are right now to where we want to be. We've created a product that can save thousands of lives. We, be we believe in this product. We hope you see the dream, too. Thank you for your time. Good job, Milo. Judges, I'm glad I'm not sitting over there today. Yeah, good presentation. Really good. Thank you. Um, did you develop the sensor yourself, and is that what the patent is going to be on, is on the sensor itself, the skin sensor? So the sensor itself is actually based on a research paper from a, from a university in Spain, but our patent is on the cartridge technology. Uh, the, we have a, re, a cartridge that lasts one time that can come out, and this is actually essential to creating this device. It also allows us to expand into further, uh, and we can read anything that comes out of your skin, and we plan to expand into that. So we've really set up a, a system that allows, and our patent covers that, so we can expand further in the future. Thank you.
Um, how repeatable is this from person to person or even within the one person? So that's actually where my specialty comes in. I'm currently working in machine learning and big data. Um, this is very much a machine learning problem. Different people have different diffusion times, but those times are based on things like weight, height, ethnicity, and age. Well, I know, but you didn't oh, answer. Sorry. <laughs> so by, by, doing, by taking the testing and data acquisition, the, a lot of that's going to go into higher, like taking people in, having them give us data points by having them drink, use the product, and then we can use that to optimize it so that each person will have their own personal readouts. Right. So, maybe, so you would have to develop the, the curve over uh, some person's usage then. Yeah, yeah. maybe to add to that, um, without knowing anything about the person, we can get within a few tens of percent. But then with the big data and the first thousand units that we plan to manufacture and uh, basically uh, give out to people to gather data, we'll be able to refine that right. and make better predictions going forward as well. So what do you have in the sen Do you have anything proprietary in the sensor, or is it more in your um, math and algorithms and how the cartridge loads in and out? Uh, right now, our sensor cartridge uh, is being miniaturized, so we believe that in the future, the cartridge, the actual chemistry going on, can be patented. Right now, we have patented the entire process of uh, both alcohol sensing as well as the cartridge technology, and we really believe that that's the key to allowing us to expand further and making it a, a, a really a, a mass consumer product. I, I think you mentioned this earlier, but I, I'm not sure I caught it correctly. So does the data get uploaded to the cloud or to some other network then? So we understand that gathering people's data is a very sensitive issue. So if we can avoid it and get with an accuracy only using data from test subjects that we acquire ourselves, we'd rather not store people's data for the reason that alcohol consumption is something that's very personal. People wouldn't want to know that some cloud is storing every time they've been drunk in the last two years. Well, I, I take a different view of that. Let's say I've got an, uh, a son that's... That tender age, and uh, he and I agree that uh, he's going to have, have his device uploaded and I will have access to it. Uh, we could expand into those features in the future. It's definitely a possibility. But right now, through our consumer insight, people want it really to be discreet. And so we thought that by sharing that information, it would actually take away from our initial yeah, market. I was really only asking if it had the capability of doing it. And one other thing is, as far as your son, a really important aspect is that notification buddy system, you'll be able to go to sleep at night knowing that they're okay and that they're not overdosing on alcohol as long as they, they've set you up as one of their notification buddies. Okay. Big if. <laughs> what keeps you up at night related to Fitbit just adding something like this into their own device or the other people that are doing personal health care tracking? I didn't hear the question. Could you repeat? Oh, what, keeps you up, what keeps you up at night with related to the competitors that already have fitness bands and whatnot adding something like this and a sensor to their device and just adding it as a feature? That's actually one of our expansion models and the potential customer that we have in the future. We, in a short six months, have built a, a, proto a working wearable prototype, and we truly believe that no other uh, small team in this amount of time can accomplish that. Also, our cartridge technology and what we have patent pending on it is something that we could license out, and really, I think we're covered when it comes to uh, if we wanted to expand into an Apple Watch 
they would buy our technology, our cartridge technology, and they could insert it into their already made electronics body. So like we could make the wristband that fits on the Apple Watch. Sure. What happens if, the, if you're, you give your wristband to somebody else for a couple hours and then take it back? Does that thwart the model in any way? Or if you drink coffee, lots of water, take other pills, whatever? Is, uh, right, so it's meant for a single person to use throughout the night. Um, I mean, if, if you were switching it off between people, there's, I think you would get sporadic readings and it would kind of defeat the purpose. So right now we've aimed to just have it for a single person to use throughout the yeah, I think people do that with breathalyzers. They kind of hand right. it around the room, right, and say, okay, what did you get? What did you get? That kind of, right. So there, <laughs> Are we there yet? It, <laughs> we recognize that fact. <laughs> well, I think the uh, breathalyzer handing it around the room, it's kind of like a novelty, and maybe it gets old after one time. It's handing around the room the second time is probably not going to happen. So with breathalyzers, people generally don't use them repeatedly, whereas with this, it's a discrete thing, which is one of the things we found from the consumer insight, was people wanted something that you didn't have to pull out in the middle of the bar. And it might be funny once, but <laughs> not every time. Thank you. Any other uh, readings that your technology could, uh, could register for dehydration or any other capacity? Yeah, so there are a lot of things that come out for your sweat things like glucose. Um, currently, there's a lot of research going into insulin and also urea, which is really a good uh, monitor for kidney health. Right now, we're starting with alcohol, but definitely looking into the future that the cartridges we've developed can be used for anything that we would want to detect through sweat. And why, did the cart why are the cartridges only one time use? So that's just a limitation of the enzymes that are inside the cartridge. There's biomolecules that digest alcohol. And, I mean, it, the analogy is like if you have a piece of meat and you leave it on the counter, it will go bad eventually. So the idea is these enzymes degrade. It's just a fact of chemistry. You can't make them last forever. What's it it ends up what? working in our favor, though, to have a disposable cartridge. And they don't degrade until there's contact with the skin? So like they, they, they have a shelf life of... It's, it's oxidation. So yeah. when we package that, we keep it in mind. We'll seal them, seal them so that when you take them out... Uh, just like, you know, uh, contacts, you know, individual contacts, as soon as you open those, it's going to uh, evaporate and dry up. So Ours, if it's vacuum, vacuum, sorry, I guess vacuum packed. That's definitely you got we're it. looking into. Exactly. And that's, you know, an issue for the future in packaging, but it's not, uh, it's not a barrier at all. How do you plan to market the product initially and then remarket the cartridges? So, um, as far as initial marketing, the plan is to have college representatives, so the same way that Microsoft has a few people who try to convince people to buy Microsoft products. We're going to have people who are kind of paid to go around and promote the product, be evangelists, if, if evangel evangelists for it. But we're also going to like, endorse college events and try to work with the universities themselves. You know, I've, I've lived in IV for five years, and I've seen some of the bad sides of what can happen. So a university could really benefit by promoting moderation and drinking in a way that's not judgmental, in a way that actually encourages people to want to do it. Yeah, we truly see that, that someone's going to see the benefit out of this, and it's, it's definitely going to work better than current personal breathalyzers work. We've got time for one more. 
I'll take it if nobody else has one. <laughs> so, uh, guys, this seems like a, a really great tool uh, to help people moderate and, uh, I guess we say, enjoy themselves responsibly. Uh, how do you respond to people who might have a sensitivity to it uh, in terms of maybe adding to a growing problem or adding to a problem of, uh, of abuse or uh, things of that nature? So from the get-go, we set out to make a safety product that people would want to use. You know, the, by making it fun, making it attractive, we get our ultimate goal, which is that more people use this product and more people learn how to moderate themselves. And that's really important to us. Great job, Team Milo. Uh, so we thought tonight we'd start with the Ealings Prize, and we're uh, fortunate to have Virgil here uh, to give the prize in his name. Uh, this was something we started last year, and we've worked with Virgil uh, last year and this year on uh, how he'd like to make the award. So I'll let him describe how he's chosen to, to do it this year. So my first impressions, of course, were the chemo garden guys. We can just go and say this, due to popular vote from you all here, uh, the people's choice goes to Milo. Um, so the tie for second in the market poll category goes to uh, Sesamo and Slightly Nutty. And for those of you keeping score at home, that leaves by process of elimination, the Insight team, first place. Uh, so the two second-place teams for the tech-driven category are Cognate and ChemoGuard. Okay, and that means that our first-place winner in the tech-driven category is Milo. Come on back. The grand prize winner is also Milo. Well, folks, thanks for coming tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, this is, uh, as Dave mentioned at the beginning, the culmination of a lot of hard work by the students this year and all the mentors in the program. And I want to thank the judges again, too, for, for their time. So thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you next year. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.